Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. The word of the Lord. May we pray. Lord, once again, realizing that I am fallen and finite and fallible, I pray, Lord, for grace by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to declare your word with boldness, with confidence, with a faith that is so contagious that each of us hearing this may discover that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, we have been studying Christian liberty, and we've thought about the liberty from man-made rules and regulations. We've thought about our liberty from the curse of the law. That's the law of sin and death. The more you sin, the more deadening your experience in your heart. And then we've thought about liberty from the power and dominion of Satan. Today I want us to focus on what are we freed for? Why do we have liberty and how do we use it? Notice he says there in verse 13 in the second sentence, Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. Think about it. You're free people. That means that you're not under the law in the sense of a condemning law, but you're under the law in Christ. How may we say that? We may say, as he says here in verse 14, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you have to understand when you read the Bible that there is always more that can be said than was said. We know that that's the second great commandment. What is the first and great commandment according to Jesus? Rhetorical question, not exactly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the first commandment, and the second is like it. So Paul is not saying that we shouldn't care about the love of God. He's saying that in our dealings with others, the whole law is summed up in one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quote out of Leviticus. Now think about it in that sense. God's law in the Old Testament is given to us at Mount Sinai. And it's also repeated before Israel, 39 years later, would enter into the promised land. So that, that's called Deuteronomy. And so it's given again. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And so we have in there, ensconced, what we call the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. And you know the Ten Commandments. It used to be that in order to join a church, children had to memorize the Ten Commandments and recite them. 
It used to be when I was in the public schools of South Carolina that the children memorized the Ten Commandments and could recite them in school. Because the public schools used to be essentially Christian schools. And you should never forget that. And of course, these things changed through court decisions. We removed Bible reading, Schenck versus Abington Township, and we removed prayer. And that was the Regent's Prayer in New York. I'm glad they outlawed the Regent's Prayer. Because it was a Christless prayer written by Christless people or written to accommodate Christless people. I grew up in a public school where we prayed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And people who were not Christian understood that's just part of the deal. I grew up in a culture which still somewhat reflected, or I was born, uh, when we had a court case that outlawed Sunday closing laws. And that involved some kosher butchers who wanted to be able to sell on Sunday. In the early days, people of other faiths, there were Muslims here, and there were lots of Jews here, observed the Christian Sabbath, which begins on Sunday morning and ends Sunday night. They observed that And they also observed their own day of rest. In the case of Jewish people, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. In the case of Muslims, on Friday. So they got an extra day. And they had a long weekend. And so that's something of the history. Crown kosher meats versus and so on. So I'm saying that the country we live in today is not the country that was existing when I was born. And I'm not that old, Methuselah. What happens when you remove the God of a people? The first thing that goes when you remove God is religion, and then morality, and then knowledge. Do you know that the same Congress that sent down the U.S. Constitution for ratification by the states had passed an ordinance called the Northwest Ordinance. It's not about Washington and Oregon. It's about the new states or the new territory that America acquired when she defeated the British. And those are the Northwest Territories, Ohio and Indiana. And in the Northwest Ordinance, passed in the very same year by the very same Congress that sent the Constitution down to be ratified, it had these words. Religion, morality, and knowledge being essential for a free people, public schools will always be encouraged. So what's the purpose of public education? It is to instill in children respect for God and respect for his commandments, the Ten Commandments. Religion, what flows out of that? Morality. And what flows out of that is knowledge. And today, with a fairly bizarre restructuring of history, 
so that history serves agendas rather than serving facts, knowledge is flying out as well. And I look at the deterioration of knowledge from the time that I was in high school. So we have that in mind here. The law is summed up in the Ten Commandments. The first tablet, our duty to God. The second tablet, our duty to man. But there's something that sums up the Ten Commandments more than that. And what sums up the Ten Commandments more than that is not just love God with all your heart and your neighbors yourself. It is the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's life is the greatest exposition of the moral law that there is. Now, out of the moral law, there were things that were unique for Israel living under the Old Covenant. And so they had rules pertaining to worship. And we can see in those rules a shadow of the cross. Those regulations for worship were fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. That's when the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. That's when those ordinances of worship under the Old Testament were fulfilled. And then they also had political rules that were for them as a civil body politic. Those rules do not apply to us today except by way of analogy. That is to say, we look at those Old Testament civil laws and we get principles of fairness, justice, and equity from them. And so therefore, it's very legitimate to look at the civil code of Old Testament Israel and deduce certain things, that crimes should fit punishments, that murder should be punished, that stealing should be punished, and all those things. So it doesn't follow through with an exact correspondence, but we, we go in there and we try to deduce principles of fairness, principles of equity. Our confession of faith says that in those words. And so we find those things there. But what I want to bring home to us today is, why are you free? And he says, you have become free, not in order to indulge sinful nature. And you know, some people could have listened to my sermon four weeks ago about freedom from man-made rules and regulations in which I talked about things like whether you eat certain foods or drink certain substances and they could have deduced from that well I'm free nobody can judge me in this hey bring out the beer and um, and let's have a pork sandwich while we're at it now notice what Paul says here and this is a balance to the sermon the very first sermon on Christian liberty and it says do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature semicolon rather serve one another in love what does that mean that means as you go throughout life you don't have to have a specific rule you don't have to have a specific law you don't have to have a specific commandment you just have to think how can I serve my neighbor? And so let's reflect on that for a moment. First, looking at one of my favorite passages of Scripture, which is Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Because as I say, 
Christ himself is the model and he himself is the standard because he perfectly kept the law of God. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 2, page 1827, and look at what he says, because this is the summary of Christian liberty. How do we use our liberty? He says, uh, starting there uh, in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. What is he saying? He's not saying that you look at other people and you say, I'm so inferior. He's not saying, oh, I'm so stupid. He's not saying that we should ever look down on ourselves as inferior or inadequate. What he's saying is, I should consider you more important than I am. I should be looking out for your interest rather than my own. And you know, immediately when I've come to grips with that fundamental truth, it nails my hide to the wall. Because no matter how hard I try, sisters and brothers, no matter how hard I try to put Sandy ahead of myself every day, I mess up one way or another. My creature comforts over her creature comforts. It may be very subtle. It may be a snide remark made under my breath. But I do not always put her above myself in terms of her needs and her welfare over my own personal desires. And that's in the case of the person on earth I love more than any other human being that I trust more than any other human being on earth. I love her devoutly, devotedly. But even with her, I mess up because, numero uno, there's a little narcissist in all of us. It's me. It's I. I'm the one who's important. And that's what we struggle with. That's why when we understand that Jesus himself is the greatest exposition of the moral law of God, we understand that the very first purpose of God's law is to condemn us. Because when I compare myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, think about it. There are people who can say, Oh, I'm a good person. Turn your page over there to chapter 3. Listen to what he says there. Paul speaks of himself in Philippians chapter 3. And there, halfway through verse 4. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal persecuting the church, look at the last clause. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless, without blame. The world is full of people who, if you ask them, do you sin? No, I don't. They just redefine sin. And the way they redefine sin is to make it all external. It's out there. It's do's and don'ts. But when you come to grips that Christ Jesus himself is the model and the standard, only a fool would say, 
I measure up. I'll say it again. When you understand that Jesus is the exposition of God's moral law, only a fool would say, I measure up to Jesus. I am as perfect as Jesus. Only a fool. So we we go back there and we say that Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 is the standard. It's counting other people as more important. And how is that true in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ? Think of Jesus before he became Jesus. Think of it when he was the second person in the Godhead. He, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, is known by his name, Yahweh. The four letters that the Jewish people were very superstitious not to pronounce. That's who he was. He didn't take up the name Jesus until he was conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. When he became Jesus, when he took on a new name, which means Yahweh is salvation, what did he give up? In heaven, Jesus was worshipped by the angels the moment the angels were created by God. There never was a time that Jesus didn't exist. And he existed in the glory of the Father before all worlds. He never lacked anything. He had nothing but praise and adoration and comfort. He never suffered any discomfort. And sisters and brothers in Christ, he gave all that up for you and me. Why did he give it up? Because he said, you are more important than I am. He's not saying that he was inferior to you, that somehow or another his mind was not as good as yours, or his body was not as good as yours, or his standing was not as good as yours. He was saying, I believe that you are more important than I am, and therefore I'm giving it all up to serve you. And that's what we see there. And so we see there in verse 4 of Philippians 2, each of you should look out not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's a little bit paraphrastic. And it's led some people in reading that paraphrase to think, well, i got to look out for me first. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, i got to look out for you. Because my natural narcissism, my me first attitude, my I'm important and you better get out of my way, that attitude that's in every single one of us will immediately latch on any possibility of twisting what Paul is saying to say, well, you've got to look out for yourself first. And this is what he says in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Think back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. What was the first temptation to sin? Satan said to Adam and Eve, you will be as gods. And what did Adam and Eve do? They reached out their hands to be equal with God, even though they certainly were not. They grasped the fruit. When they grasped the fruit, it was not simply because they thought it would be good to eat. 
They were actually reaching out to be equal with God. I'm going to be equal with God. Who does he think he is? You see, but Jesus didn't do that. As a human being, Jesus refused to rebel by putting himself on the plane with God the Father in his human nature. And in his human nature, he gave up that recognition of his absolute equality to the Father in becoming a human being. Remember that throughout history, the raised fist is a fist raised at God. It's a fist that's raised to say, we will be as gods. That's what the Tower of Babel was all about. It was mankind in unity, reaching out in defiance of God to be equal with God. So he says, who being in very nature, verse 6, God, did not equality, consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to. Rather than reaching out to be as God, he gave up his recognition as God. He gave it up. He let go of it. In becoming a human being, he gave up all of the prerogatives and privileges of being God. He let go of it. Man keeps wanting to get what he's never had. Jesus, in becoming a man, gave up what he did have. And that was equality with God. And became for a season lower than the angels themselves in order to serve you and me. He says in verse 7, he made himself of nothing. He made himself of no account. Hey, listen, I make myself of much account. And so do you. Jesus made himself of no account. What did he do? How did he do that? Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that's the essence of the Ten Commandments. That's the essence of the, of the two great tablets of the law. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbors yourself. It's giving it all up in order to serve. You know, I have often said to couples as I would perform a marriage, I would read in Ephesians 5 about the role of the husband and the role of the wife and how both of those roles are subsumed underneath the commandment in Ephesians 5.22 that we were to serve each other in love. And I would say this to the groom, and I would say this to bride. If you're not willing to be a servant to this person, to put her needs ahead of yourself, let's don't go through with this. And I would say to the wife, if you're not willing to serve this man cheerfully, to put his needs above your own needs and desires, let's don't go through with this. Because a marriage that's founded on Typical human nature, what's in it for me, is a marriage that's going to fail. Or, in the words of many people over the years who've uh, come to me for counseling, because I'm free, I'm living a life of quiet desperation. Quiet desperation. Quiet desperation. And so, you see that this is the key to the whole thing. 
And look at verse 9. He says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, sisters and brothers, God has given us liberty in Christ First of all, from man-made rules and regulations. That is, no church has authority to impose on you or me rules and regulations that are not in the Bible. We have the right to ask any preacher, whether he is the Pope, a bishop, or old Bob. Where is that in the book? Please show me that from the Word of God. And if they can't show you that from the Bible, the written Word of God, you're not obligated to follow it or believe it. That's what we mean by sola scriptura, the scripture alone. The church, no church anywhere on earth has the power to put rules and regulations or beliefs on you that are not found squarely in the Word of God. And also it has something to say about civil government. No civil government on earth, from that flowing out of Washington, D.C., or Little Rock, or Austin, where, what's that bridge, Congress Bridge with all the bats, neat place to go. No matter where it is, has the authority to make you violate God's word. We stick to the Bible when it comes to the civil government. And then we're free from the pattern of sin and death. And we're free from the dominion of Satan. But why are we free? We're free to serve others. Now, if you would turn with me back to the Gospel of Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 17. I want us to look at a strange passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 17. And we'll find that on page 15, there we go, (coughs) Um, 15.26, and look at the top of the page, the temple tax. Matthew 17, 24. I want us to think about how do we use our freedom when it comes to things that we really don't want to do. Like being kind to our neighbor who has offended us. Or being kind to someone who is of a nationality that we're at war with. Or even our good friends. Now we're dealing here with the temple tax, Matthew 17, 24. And the temple tax was an unusual thing that because the scribes and the Pharisees took God's law and added to it. They always added to it. If, um, if having five bites of food is sinful, let's just limit it to one bite of food. That's kind of crazy, but it illustrates what they did. They created with the oral law a fence around the law. Now, under the Old Testament, there was a commandment that every male 
had to pay a tax in once in his lifetime to support the temple. And during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, because the people were so poor, they altered that to pay less. But in Jesus' day, it was something that people said, this is incumbent on us to do. And it's the two drachma tax. And um, it's interesting, it was to support the very expensive temple. And you know that after this, the Roman Empire, because they loved your money, they kept it as a law, but then that tax went to support the temple of Jupiter in the city of Rome. Now, that's the background. And look at verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now, Jesus, when he's dealing with the public, never lays it out the same way that he lays it out when he's dealing with his inner circle. In other words, when he was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, what did he do? He said, show me a coin. So they showed him a coin. And he says, whose picture and inscription is this on them? They said, Caesar's. And he said, well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, if you analyze what Jesus said, what he was saying was not saying anything. Let me say that again. If you analyze what Jesus was saying to the public when they were trying to trap him and get him to say something that he wouldn't say it in, without destroying his ability to witness to people, he gave them a trick answer. I'll ask you one question. Is there anything in your life, my life, the life of government on earth that doesn't ultimately belong to God? And the answer to that question is no. There isn't one square inch on this planet that Jesus doesn't say, it's mine. Everything is God's. So Jesus is avoiding stating the truth, which is ultimately far more complicated than the answer he gave. His answer was designed to shut him up. And it's amazing how Jesus was so effective in dealing with these things in public that they were never able to trap him. Hey, <laughs> I ain't that smart. Put a microphone in front of me and catch me off guard and I'm going to get trapped every single time. Every single time. Because I, I startle and I think, oh, oh, oh no, well, no, that's not what I mean. I'm more like Peter than like Jesus. Impulsive and running my mouth when I ought to just say for a moment, Lord, give me wisdom how to answer this. So you've got to understand when he said, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's. Well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's, the things to God. Now, notice what he says. First of all, Peter immediately responds, yeah, of course he does. He replied, when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. He uses it as a teaching opportunity. Jesus' words to his disciples are very clear compared to his words to public. And he said, what do you think, Simon? 
he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? And Peter thinks about it for a moment and he answers correctly, from others, Peter answered. Notice what Jesus says. Then the sons are exempt. It's the time of year when I collect all of the papers I need to do my taxes. And I never do them myself. I always have a CPA do it. I'm not going to go to jail. (laughs) I'm going to make that CPA go to jail. No, I'm kidding. I collect all these papers. Do you think, I just love paying taxes, don't you? And Jesus said, the sons are exempt. There are several kinds of papers that I keep. One is something that's exempt from income. That's a business expense. That's why if I ever take you out to eat, I always get a receipt. Because I'm allowed to do a certain amount, and it's changed over the past few years, to exclude that from income. And then there are other things that I deduct from income. That's things like medical expenses and charitable giving. Now, notice what he's saying here. The sons are exempt, tax exempt. Let that sink in for a moment. Because while Jesus is dealing with the two drachma temple tax that was paid to support the temple, he's really giving us another principle altogether. And it will change your perspective on paying taxes. You don't have to pay it. You're not obligated. You're not a citizen of this country. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute, Bob. Are you really telling me I don't have to pay my taxes? (laughs) Sick at none. Yes and no. What I'm saying, it's your attitude. Because notice what he says in verse 27. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. And that's where I want us to focus in this last point. It's using our freedom to win others to Christ. That's the goal. The goal isn't to be a good citizen of the United States. What does the government do with your money? It does horrible things with your money. And if you judge whether you should pay your taxes or not, like Henry David Thoreau, who refused to pay his taxes because of the Mexican War, you'll never pay your taxes. And I'll come visit you in Leavenworth. Notice what he's saying. He's saying you're free. You should regard giving your tax money as a means of sharing your witness to Christ. Don't offend them. Now, did Jesus go out of his way to not offend people? Jesus offended people where it was important, which was to puncture their balloon so that they would not be full of pride. And you can think earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 15 where the disciples of Jesus said, the Pharisees were offended at what you said. He said, let them be. They're blind guides leading the blind. But when it came to 
a witness in the world, Jesus said, pay your taxes. I want it to sink in. Why pay your taxes? As a public witness. As a public witness. He's saying, you're exempt. You don't have to pay taxes. Because you're not really a citizen of this nation. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And you're just passing through. But God uses civil government to protect you. He uses the army. He uses police forces. And we're far better off having policemen who are armed, unless certain things are true of us, than we are just having every man do that which is right in his own eyes, like the Wild West. He's saying, you're free. You're exempt. But what he's really saying is this. He's saying there's no area of life where you're not free. But don't use your freedom to gratify your own sinful nature. Use your freedom to serve others. Even the tax collector. I will never forget, there was a man in my congregation that committed his life to Christ. And he began to be burdened about things. This man was an accountant. (laughs) And one day I had a phone call from his wife. And she said, Bob, would you come over to see Leroy? I always make up a name so I won't say a real name because the man's spouse is still alive and might listen to this. Could you come over to our house? And as soon as I come and knock on the door, the husband lets me in and the wife begins to talk and he realizes she's about to tell me something. Don't do that! Don't tell Bob about that! And she said, Bob, I'm worried sick because we haven't filed income tax in over nine years. And I said, Leroy, you're an accountant. You haven't filed taxes in over nine years. Anyhow, in the course of time, he committed his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he wanted to get right with God. And so he knew he needed to deal with this. And so I called a lawyer who was a friend of a friend of mine's, and we set up things where he could incriminate himself and not have a terrible sentence. So he filed his taxes. And I went to talk to the IRS agent. Now, I've known a couple And they tend to be extremely arrogant people. Never forget the chihuahua hiding under the sofa where the Rottweiler's in the living room with you. So they've got the big dog of government and jail, and they're hiding under the couch, and they don't trust a little chihuahua. They're liable to run out and bite you on the calf. And so that agent said to me, And I'm going to imitate him. It's so vivid in my mind, even after 43 years. They say you cannot uh, get blood out of a turnip, but that doesn't mean you can't squeeze really hard. And I said, sir, you should not say that. This man incriminated himself. You didn't catch him. He turned himself in. 
Now what I'm getting at is this. We have a public witness for Christ. You don't have to pay your taxes. But you should. God uses that tax money to protect you. He uses many means to protect you. But the fundamental reason you should pay your taxes is a way of showing love to mean little chihuahua people that work for the Infernal Revenue Service. Never forget, never forget, whoever's mean to you and mean to me and ugly and nasty and self-asserting and wanting to put us down, they've got problems you cannot even imagine. There isn't a single solitary soul that doesn't have terrible problems that weigh on them heavily. I don't need to enumerate them. The point is, have you ever thought the purpose of your life is to have a divine encounter with that wicked person who's on his way to hell? So that as you demonstrate the love of Christ, the kindness of Jesus, the tenderness of the Lord Jesus Christ, being gracious and forgiving and being very kind, that that will melt that person's heart. That will melt that person's heart. Never forget, the tax collector needs a heart that's melted too. And the author of this gospel, because two of the gospels were authored by apostles and two were not. Matthew was the tax collector that was sitting at the toll booth collecting taxes for Rome. And his heart was won by the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones in Christ, that is the whole purpose of our lives. It's to win other people to Christ. It's by washing the feet of filthy, nasty people. It's by embracing the leper. It's by touching the person who's defiled and showing them kindness, tenderness, and love. That's the purpose of the whole law, summed up in the life of Jesus and the purpose of Christian liberty is to use that liberty as free people, not shackled with bitterness and meanness and anger, but using that freedom to love the unlovely. That's Christian liberty. May we pray. Lord, we pray you'll take these words and you would emboss them on our hearts that we might be tender and kind and loving to everyone Lord, because we have no idea what people are struggling with in this world. Even mean people in positions of authority. Give us in the power of the Holy Spirit to emulate Jesus and love people into your kingdom. For Jesus' sake, amen.